0: Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is my dad, Ted.
1: Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky. Hey, here we go. Another great conversation with another amazing author, Craig Weber. Craig has written two great books. He's an amazing follow on LinkedIn. He writes articles, every couple weeks or quarter, and they're always interesting, bringing us back to how to maintain the sweet spot and support our own ability to have the capacity to have the right conversations. In this conversation with Craig, I think we touched on a lot of different things from how to be vulnerable to how to navigate through political conversations, and there's a few things that we talked about that I really, really appreciated. And one of them was how do you grow and support others with conversational vulnerability and capacity, as well as how do you try to be the constructive variable in a confrontational situation? In other words, how do you sit there and understand that you are not obligated to agree with the other person, but you are obligated to understand Craig talks about a lot of different things with me on this podcast, and I really, really enjoyed the interview, especially with the different ways in which that we can work with others, learn from others, and be empathetic with others. So enjoy this conversation with Craig Weber. Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is your host, Ted Neitzke, and I am joined today by Uh, My newer friend, Craig Weber, and author of Conversational Capacity and Influence and Action, Uh, just a great guy who we have brought in multiple times uh, to support the leadership and learning of a variety of our leaders. So, Craig, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Ted. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we were just talking about our differences, me being in the Midwest here in Wisconsin, and it is a uh, eight inches of snow, uh, 31 degree windy day by me. And what's it by you? Ah, uh, sunny around sixty, and
2: actually quite nice here in the Mojave Desert in California.
1: Yeah, well, I will be happy to switch with you uh, midway here. <laughs> so, um, so Craig, one of the things I think is really uh, that I really admire about you is you know writing multiple books, being an influencer, and supporting leadership. And the last time we talked, it, I didn't really get into this. But what sparked you into becoming you know an author and then a, a leader of leaders?
2: Uh, Well, author, I've I've been working around these ideas around conversational capacity, how to help people engage with each other in a more constructive way in challenging circumstances for quite a number of years. And I've always been a big consumer of books. I love to read, still do. Um, So I always thought at some point I'd like to write one. And then once the ideas really started to crystallize, I thought, okay, this is the right time for a book like this in the marketplace. It's kind of coming at the issue in a different way and so that was kind of the inspiration for it. Always wanted to write a book, love big, big consumer of books. And then I belief that these ideas can make a difference. And so how do I get them out there in a way that uh, allows them to do it?
1: Yeah. And I, I just I think, you know, what you've laid out here is just a very practical process, which we'll review here in a moment. Um, that is that is just really helpful. And the, the three areas that I wanted to talk with you about today was, you know, the application of of conversational capacity and influence and action processes uh, in diverse environments, um, helping others create you know psychological safety in uh, you know not just conflict but normal meetings and in interactions, and then a, a little bit about your work in politics. So sure, happy to do it. Before we start there though. Uh, We're going to have some fun here with Craig because uh, one of the pieces I talked about on the podcast a few episodes back was that, you know, utilizing this time mid-year to really kind of refresh and reintroduce people. And uh, I thought we could have some fun when you and I go back and forth with this. So I've got a a bunch of rapid questions for you and, you know, whatever kind of hits you first, we'd love to learn about you as we move forward. So what is your actual full name? Craig Allen Weber. C A W.
2: C-A-W. That's right. That's yeah. right.
1: One of the things I do with uh, young well, friends who have uh, children is I always try to buy the stock that lines up with their initials. So we'll have to go look later on what C-A-W is. I'm sure it's a penny stock yeah. of some rail line or something.
2: There's a CAW company out there. I can't remember what the uh, C-A-W stands for,
1: but uh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. OK. So we'll see how's what that, tra- that worked out in terms of buying stock with their initials. Oh, you know, what's really fun is, so one of my godsons uh, just turned 28 and cashed his in. It was a penny stock when he was born and it split like 40 times over the course of his life. So uh, I think we paid a hundred dollars for it. And he cashed that in for about, I think it was about 15 or 1600 bucks. All right, there you go. Nice little gift from Uncle Ted. There you go. Thanks, Uncle Uh, Ted. Yeah. So what high school did you attend? Quartz Hill
2: High School. And what city is that in? That is in Quartz Hill, California. Kind of in the again up here in the Mojave Desert, just north of L.A.
1: And in high school, what would you have been described as in one word? Mm. Invisible. <laughs> mine was <laughs> mine was uh, funny. Funny. Um, okay. What college or university did you
2: attend? So I uh, went to Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Oh, I didn't know that. In the North Shore of Oahu, yeah. Not a bad, uh, Not a, if you're going to go to BYU, Hawaii is the option. Oh, you my gosh.
1: I didn't even know they had a campus there.
2: Yeah, really small, really small. And uh, they had a program there that I was really excited about. And so that's what kind of drew me there. Not It wasn't Hawaii, it was the program, but Hawaii was icing
1: on the cake. And are you uh, a regular attender of alumni events just to get back there?
2: No, sadly, no, no, not I'm not. <laughs> I do have clients though in Honolulu, so uh, that that'll take me back. So,
1: oh well, I will be more than happy to be your technology guy for those trips. <laughs> uh, and what was your major there?
2: Organizational development. It was a strange degree. It was kind of a liberal arts degree in OD, which is doesn't make a lot of sense. We were studying everything from anthropology to history to business, you name it. Psychology. It was a
1: fantastic experience. Oh, I can only imagine that just depth of, of knowledge and how that layered over each other every time that you would come in out of classes.
2: Yeah, just an insanely great experience. It, it, I went into college kind of naive thinking it's going to be a transformative experience and I'm going to come out of it a completely different human being. And the first year or so, I was like, I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. By the time I came out, I was like, nope, that was spot on. That, that was a pivotal
1: experience. That is fantastic. And obviously, you have utilized this your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Still kind of doing, doing the same work that I started there, actually. Yeah. Well, maybe you can go back and they're using your text. That would be quite yeah, an honor. <laughs> uh, what, I, what was your uh, first job in life? I my was a paperboy. Yeah, my first job. Um, we, we I grew up when I was in
2: high school on a small ranch. So, uh, you know, first job actually was like milking cows and, you know, feeding cattle and we grew feed hydroponically. So I was uh, cleaning out the hydroponic machines, but outside of our own little family farm, my first paid gig was moving hand lines on a big alfalfa farm down the road.
1: What is that? What? what okay. So what is moving hand lines?
2: What so at irrigation lines, you get oh, hand lines. okay, you gotta pick them up, carry them, and move them physically. So they're called hand lines as opposed to an irrigation system that's on a wheel and you can move it manually. Yeah. So this was yeah, you had to carry the line. So it was really rough work in knee deep wet alfalfa. So uh a real inspiration to find a job that uh you know, I always said I always wanted a job now where I shower before work rather than after.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And um what was your first car that you purchased?
2: It was a 1976 Honda Accord. Oh. First year they were ever uh, uh, put out in the U.S. Loved that car. Treated us really well.
1: What color was it? Blue. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, what? really kind
2: of a sweet ride. I love that little thing.
1: I Mine was a, a 1982 Ford Escort station wagon. Nice. But my aunt had... Like a 1975 (laughs) Honda Civic, those little tiny, she had the little red one. And that thing was just the coolest car. Fantastic. Favorite food?
2: Uh, Whatever I'm currently eating. Uh, I'm pretty (laughs) eclectic in terms of my uh, taste. So uh, that's a really hard question to answer. Although, you know, a really good pizza and a cold beer is hard to beat. I was going to say, and then your favorite beverage to
1: go with that is what? If I was having a pizza, probably a cold
2: beer or something.
1: So, yeah. So, and your favorite restaurant that you've ever been to? Oh, my. Wow. That is tough.
2: Favorite restaurant. I uh, have so many. I don't know what to say favorite, but Renee and I, uh, we love Lola's in Seattle. So, it's a Tom Douglas cool. restaurant there on uh, Virginia and Fourth. Uh, Lola's, great place. That's one of our favorites, I'd say.
1: What is the single greatest adventure you've ever taken in life?
2: Boy, that's a really tough one too. I don't know. I mean, lived in Japan. I lived in Australia. I lived in New York. I lived in Hawaii. Um, So, uh, my brother, Randy, who, you know, well, we take off and head off into the, into the Mojave desert death Valley and surrounding areas in our four wheel drives every year, a couple of times and get lost and beat our rigs up. So do a lot of backpacking. I don't know if I could name one. I don't know if I really could. I mean, I guess, you know, in some ways it was taking off as a young punk who didn't know what he wanted to do and heading off to school and how that's taken me. So it, if you get up on the balcony and kind of look at the big picture, that's probably the biggest adventure I've ever took, ever, ever encountered or, you know, adventured out on.
1: Yeah, so this is one of those questions where, you know, when you talk about curiosity and building curiosity, this pulls a lot of people to that center of of you know the real sweet spot of being able to be empathetic and understanding because they see different sides of people. And as I've been working with this tool the last couple of uh, weeks and months, my favorite answer that I've heard someone say is marriage. Yeah. I, and I you I, know when I, I think thought about of that it, too. Yeah, I think I thought of it the same way you did. I thought, oh, taking my both my kids, you know, climbing in Colorado, and then when they said marriage. Or, you know, there's just these different personal things. It's so interesting to see how people respond to that. Right. Becoming a parent, right? Becoming a father. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I thought of that, although with my wife,
2: Renee, we've known each other since junior high school. So, yeah, that must have been more of it. She was more of a partner in the adventure rather than the adventure, right? So, I think she was more of kind of my, uh, you know, my partner through it all. So, uh, I thought of that, but uh, I think the marriage was less of an adventure and more of kind of a, a and escape from some of the stresses of the adventure,
1: if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I think, you know, getting to know you and even hearing these answers, I can see how you can bring together, you know, minimizing and winning and curious and candid and like all those different ways, like how successful you can be if you u- utilize those tools.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So here's my, I, I get two, a couple more here. So my, my, uh, what is, what is one unique trivial fact about you? And I'll share with you one of mine. And that's, okay. that I, I once caught an armed robber. Nice. Mm-hmm. nice. Who That's turned out good. to be who turned out to be a classmate of my brother's. <laughs> it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. Which is probably why I'm standing here. That is hilarious. It caught an armed robber. It
2: turned out to be someone your family knows. That's yeah. nice. Uh let's see. Um, I can do a couple. One, I guess. Um, for ten years, we had an adopted Bengal tiger.
1: What? At the ranch or like?
2: No, well, th- th- it sounds a lot more awesome than it is. It's technically accurate, but my wife is a zookeeper. She works in a place out here that does captive breeding research with endangered cats, and they trade and coordinate with zoos all over the world. So tigers, leopards, jaguars, jaggerundis, margays, etc. And we adopted a Bengal tiger Caesar. But it's not like they let you load him in the Jeep and bring him home on the weekends, but we did get to pay for his care and feeding for a decade. So I think the idea that we adopted a Bengal tiger sounds awesome, but uh it is a bit of a random fact.
1: I was like, I don't remember seeing you on the Netflix special Tiger King. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. Check check the check the septic tank or whatever. Did you watch that show?
2: We did not. My wife oh. said, uh, she talked to a couple of her colleagues and they said, don't watch it. You'll be, you'll have a stroke. You'll be yeah, so Yeah, you
1: horrified. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, well, we did not watch that.
1: That is a pretty, pretty awesome thing. I would have, I, I think if you're out socially, you just end it with, we adopted a Bengal tiger. I don't want to talk about it. End the story. Yeah. 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 You're going to look like quite the boss across the bar. Exactly. And, I mean,
2: there's not many people who can say they had an adopted Bengal tiger for a decade. Yeah. yeah. You and Mike Tyson. Yeah. 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 The hangover. Exactly.
1: Uh, last one for you. If you could have uh spend a day with someone dead or alive, who would you spend the day with? Wow. You know, someone that's always
2: fascinated me and it just, just from his background to the life experience he had and to the difference he made that just, I think it'd be really interesting to spend a day with be Abraham Lincoln. Oh, maybe that guy thought the way he operated, you know, the, just rather extraordinary human being. When I read Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, I was on a plane when he was shot, and I actually got emotional. You felt like you knew the guy. So that would certainly be one uh,
1: uh, somebody on my short list. Yeah, and she is one of my, no offense, One Doris Kearns Goodwin is one of my favorite authors. How she tells stories. Her Franklin Delano Roosevelt book is phenomenal. No Ordinary
2: Time, love it, No yes. Ordinary
1: Time, yeah, well, it's right there. And yeah, uh uh do you have a favorite Lincoln quote?
2: Um I have quite a few but I love uh I use this a lot in the workshops and it
1: relates to the conversation we're about to have. I don't like that man. I ought to get to know him better. Yes, love it. Love it. My my favorite one is when the facts change I change my mind. <laughs> there you go. And then he had another one that was I really liked and that was when he was talking about trust someone had confronted him of like how come you don't tell me all of these things and he said it's not that i don't trust you it's i don't trust who you trust and it's just how he how he laid out the norm of like there are things you need to know and things you don't need to know but he was so kind about it that's hilarious that's great i've not heard that one i don't trust who you trust that's nice yeah so all right going back away from those different pieces let's talk a little bit about you know your processes with you know building capacity and teaming and trust and one of the questions I have for you that I think there is some inherent conflict in is when we get in rooms that are diverse. And when I, I want to just define diverse generationally, demographically, ethnically, um, there, there there tends to be a sense of um defensiveness at times in some of those different conversations and meetings. And what I, you you had a great article on your LinkedIn a, a couple of months ago. And if you could just talk us through, like, how do you see your processes really helping people get to, you know, the center where they need to be to be successful in, in a diverse environment?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question and a relevant one today. A lot of conversation about this. So, yeah, the article I wrote called Conversational Capacity and the Diversity Bonus was kind of looking at the conversational capacity framework as it relates to diversity and I really focused a lot on Dr. Scott Page at the University of Michigan. He wrote a book called The Diversity Bonus. And he comes at the issue, I thought, from a very interesting angle. He's a mathematician. So you know, <laughs> this guy's looking at the issue of diversity. And what he found is diverse teams, especially when they're dealing with complex, messy problems, outperform less diverse teams six ways to Sunday. So the evidence borders on overwhelming um, and he defines diversity fairly broadly. I think you know we talked before we started here that diversity is often defined very narrowly, you know, our race, you know, our you know ethnicity, or uh, you know, or generational gaps, or something we focus on. But he says it's cognitive diversity is what we got to be focusing on, and identity ver- diversity is a subset of cognitive diversity. And so I, and the way I would describe it is the more diverse your team. The more capable you are of learning in complex, messy, shifting circumstances, because you have more lenses through which to look at the problem. The challenge is we need the ability to engage those diverse perspectives constructively. That's where things get tricky, because often when we engage with someone who sees the world differently, rather than adopt a learning-centered focus, people start to get defensive. They defend their view. They dismiss the views of others. Confirmation bias kicks in. So if your view lines up with me, I listen to you. If your view contradicts mine, I tend to discount or ignore you. And so a lot of our basic human tendencies tend to get in the way of our ability to capture the goodness that comes from a room full of people with diverse perspectives. So high conversational capacity, you could say diversity is a strength we can trans we can transform the diverse perspectives into learning whereas low conversational capacity and diversity is a form of dysfunction mm. it'll 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 things will go off the rails really quickly so i would argue that if you really want a team that can perform well when they're dealing with tough problems having a lot of cognitive diversity and high conversational capacity are things you need to think about we need the ability to kind of we need a lot of perspectives we can use to make sense of a complicated problem, and we need the ability to engage those uh, perspectives in a constructive, learning-focused way.
1: What I love about it is again the you know the cognitive diversity component in the room, and honoring that over all of the other experiences. Because I, I think one of the things like I like I've shared is that we are not honoring enough of just the different people in the room. And finding processes to get them out of being quiet. Yeah. And, and, and talk to me about, or talk to us about like, what, what processes do you use to support that kind of that, that harvesting of the cognitive capacity of other people in the room? How do, how, how do you suggest we do that?
2: Yeah. Great question. So. There's another article I put out too more recently that kind of gets to that. And it's the idea that you can't control every variable in a conversation or meeting, but you can try to be a constructive variable. And I think someone who's trying to be a constructive variable, say in a meeting where a really tough decision is going to be made, is A, putting their ideas, their views, their concerns on the table in a really clear way, because they realize that the way they're looking at the issue might spark an insight for somebody else. And if I'm not candid, if I'm not putting my concerns or my ideas on the table clearly, I'm kind of stealing from the group, right? I'm not, there's a learning moment there that I'm just not allowing to happen because I'm not being candid and upfront. But at the same time, they're curious, back to the word you brought up earlier. So they're actively trying to help other people get their views on the table clearly and directly, especially when those views contrast with their own. And they're not doing it to agree, They're doing it to expand the amount of learning taking place. And so I think that's where the real sweet spot is, where I'm being very candid and direct and putting my ideas on the table, but I'm often working just as hard and harder to help other people get their ideas on the table. And so just a quick example, Ted, we're in a conversation or meeting, and I see you blurt out a concern, but you don't do a really good job of maybe explaining where it's coming from. So I might jump in and help you out and say, hey... Ted, you've got a really strong reaction to this idea. Take a couple of minutes and unpack that for us. Can you give us a quick example of why you feel this is a bad way to go? I'm actually trying to help you get your view, your perspective into the conversation in a more robust way. It could be we're in the same meeting and I'm waffling on, blah, 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 blah. But my overall point isn't clear. It's Mm -hmm. like, what is he talking about? You Mm -hmm. might notice and say, Craig, you've been talking here for a couple of minutes, but I'm a little confused. Are you a fan of this decision or do you not like it? No, I don't like it. I think this is a very bad way to go. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Tell us a little more about why. So again, you're helping me clarify my view and to get it into the conversation more clearly. And then lastly, we're in a meeting and I haven't said a word. I've been suspiciously quiet over in the corner, maybe looking down at my agenda doing tic-tac-toe. You might notice and say, hmm, that's interesting. There's a perspective missing in this conversation. Craig's entire view is absent. I'm going to simply invite him in. I'm curious where he's at on this. So you might say, Craig, we've been talking about this issue now for 30 minutes or so. Given everything you've heard from uh, others around the room, I'd love to get your take on what we're exploring here. What do you think we should do? And so that's an idea of how you can have a lot of cognitive diversity in the room. But if you also have people who are trying to be a constructive variable, trying to shape the conversations so they're more balanced in terms of candor and curiosity, yes, but also balanced in terms of participation. It doesn't matter if we're in a meeting of 10 people and you and I are in the sweet spot and eight other people are sitting there quietly. There needs to be balanced participation and balanced dialogue. So that's a long-winded answer, but I don't know if that's helpful.
1: No, it's perfect because I one of the things I find that a lot of people I'm with struggle is to positively reinforce when we're in that sweet spot. I get really excited in in team meetings with people when we're having really hard conversations, and you can see people getting blotchy under the under the neck and trying to operate within kind of like the social norms of kindness and candor, and 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 yet get their point across. And then other people, you know, going into kind of win mode and and saying things like, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, you're kind of triggering me right now. And then the other, the, the other person's like, well, I didn't mean to trick you. I was just trying to be, and then that becomes the, the conversation around, like, yeah. now it's all about our behaviors instead of- Now we're of our off. Business. Yeah. So what do you suggest when that happens with teams? Because I think that's one of those weird, it happens in hierarchical conversations. You know, there always tends to be a boss in the room who, you know, is a leader, but has more authority. What, what do you do and how do you coach us when we start to go off the rails? And it it just becomes this emotional, like almost mocking of the language or the process.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I think a couple of things you can do to address that. One would be more proactively. So what I we often encourage people in teams to do, I know my brother just did this with a school district in uh, California here, is he actually helped them put together what we call a conversational code of conduct. a set of clear behavioral norms that align with the kind of school we're trying to run, the kind of business we're trying to build, the kind of teamwork we're trying to do. And so it codifies it. We're not going to leave it to chance that people know what's appropriate in terms of how to engage with each other when something important's at stake and maybe it's tense. So that can be really helpful to kind of head that problem up at the past before it even occurs. And then two, I think in a team with high conversational capacity, if that happens, they're able to kind of identify. Oh, sorry about that. That's not what I meant. Here's where I was going with that. Sorry, push back, raise your hand again if I come across in a counterproductive way. Let's get right back to business. And they're able to kind of identify the little disconnect. Talk about it really quickly and then get right back to the problem, where to your point, a team with low conversation capacity will often let that one little incident derail everything. Suddenly, the the little breach becomes the point of topic. Other people see the breach and begin shutting down. So I'm not going to jump in if that's that's how you get responded to here. And the whole thing goes sideways. So having people who are working on their conversational capacity, they may not be perfect at it, but they're working at it. And having a shared code for how we agree to try to operate with each other. And then one last thing, what's often helpful is to have what we call a sweet spot facilitator in the room. So you may be running your meeting, Ted, you're kind of got the agenda, you're, you're in charge of running it, but someone else on your team, someone else in the meeting, and they usually rotate the role, is the sweet spot facilitator. And what they're doing is watching how well are we doing at staying in the sweet spot. And if someone's maybe struggling, my job is to notice and to help them out. So it kind of goes back to what we just talked about. If Craig blurts out of you, but doesn't explain it, and no one else picks up on it, The facilitator's job is to notice and say, great, tell us more. Give us a little background. Can you share more of your thinking about why you think X? So someone's paying attention, not necessarily to the content of the meeting. They're paying more attention to the process in the meeting.
1: Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. That's a great idea to have someone, you know, in the norm setting or at the beginning of the meeting, the roles of being there. Because, you know, when you, (laughs) there are people who just thrive on being the timekeeper, right like hey okay it's 10 minutes move on right but to have that to have that sweet spot facilitator i love that idea cuz you know after i had seen you the first time craig i came back and i i developed a little tool just for myself where i i created a a a a 54321 towards candor and courage and a 54321 scale to curiosity and humility and then i started kind of scoring the people in the room as to where i saw them or if they were in the sweet spot So that I could go back and coach to that and just share with them like, hey, in the meeting today, you know, you were in high minimal minimizing mode or you were at high win mode. And I just want you to become cognitive that, you know, and again, going with the cognitive diversity, just think about what your role and actions are in the room and how that's impacting the dynamics for others. Fantastic.
2: Yeah, that's a great example of, you know, what I talk about in my second book, Influence and Action, if someone is doing a good job of being situationally aware kind of about the conversation. What are the patterns of conversation in this meeting? And do they line up with, or do they undermine to a certain extent, the purpose of the meeting? And my job is to try to close the gap. And so if I see sign of I'm scoring the meeting, you could say, I'm noticing when someone's being high candor, low curiosity, I can either intervene in the moment, hey, let's bounce. So you've come out with a strong view, Craig. Obviously, you're reacting to this. Let's bounce it around the room and hear where others are at on the issue. You're actually helping shape the conversation. Or I like your idea. You may need to coach me offline. Hey, Craig, I love your candor in meetings. You're really good at putting ideas on the table and concerns that maybe others aren't willing to speak up about. But how you're doing it, I think maybe doing some damage you don't intend. Let's talk about that. And so you can actually coach me into how I can have more constructive influence in the next meeting.
1: Yeah. And to your point, especially if as long as to me as long as the leaders who are listening remember that when you coach somebody offline you don't you you have the courage to be candid with them that you don't do the baloney of you know others in the meeting are telling me that they're like right. oh my gosh that's I mean, I'm not a violent person, but sometimes that's kind of like a slap in the throat. Like, don't, right? yeah. don't blame others. Tell me the truth.
2: Yeah, you you, you, you see someone behaving that way. And you I develop adult onset Tourette syndrome, right? It's like, oh, man, that just, yeah, that gets me going. Yeah. I think that's right. Hey, I love your behavior. I think you're spot on. But a number of people are having real trouble with it. That is just,
1: yeah, there's no, is, there's no, there. yeah, exactly. So when you when you were talking before about situational awareness, I want to give you a scenario here because this is something where I'm sure you coach a lot of people around as well as me. When you're in the meeting and you're having the conversation, there tend to be people who like to take the conversation wherever they are currently in their mind. So we're here to talk about A, and then the next thing, you know, they're off on like they saw an opening and they just take it someplace else and they completely lack the situational awareness that there are 4 6 12 other people who are here for a a targeted reason. Yeah. What is your what is your advice in the in, in your learning especially around the behavioral science pieces here of how do you how do you politely pull that person back and keep them in the lane that we are driving in? Good question. That happens a lot. Um you know, a stun gun comes to mind, but
2: typically it turns out they frown on that in a professional environment. <laughs> so, uh, absent a, a stun gun. Uh, no, I think, you know, I think a way to respond to that is to get curious. Is there a connection between what they're talking about and what we were currently discussing? If so, I'm missing it. And I might need to get curious and try to have them help me clarify it. If there isn't a connection, then maybe we can talk and call that out and kind of get back to the topic. So I think a lot of times, like, what's that person talking about? That's not related. We're we're off in the weeds only because I'm missing the connection. Maybe I'm, I, I drifted off for a second or two and missed a key point. So I think responding in a curious way, as opposed to saying, look, is your point related to what we're talking about? If not, do you mind shutting up so we can get back to what we're talking about? <laughs> right,
1: right. Right. Well, that was great curiosity and candor in one <laughs> statement.
2: Yeah. And so I think, hey, tell me, I'm not seeing a connection between your point here. You're kind of talking here for a couple of minutes about what you're talking about now and what we were talking about here in terms of trying to make this decision. If there is a connection, can you help me see it? And if there isn't, can we set this aside and come back to what we were talking about? So maybe you're missing something, right? So I think it's a a less confrontational, what's wrong with you sort of approach and say, hey, help me see the connection. And if there isn't one, do you mind if we get back to the topic we were discussing previously?
1: Well, and again, and to stay into the sweet spot, what I like about the, your your tactic there is, you know, if we have a sweet spot facilitator who is the neutral party, not the boss or whomever, and they get to they get to pull us back there because one of the things and comment on this, please, that I that I find a lot is that people walk into a meeting with a narrative in their head about you know different people in the room, and and then when they they have that narrative and then they see the evidence to fuel that narrative, like they don't care about anybody else, but themselves, they, they, and they're not in either of your modes, especially about empathy. You know, uh, what what do you, what do you suggest for that? Again, individually for, if I'm the one walking in there looking for the evidence for my negative narratives. Like, how do I kind of shake myself out of the, out of that lack of empathy and get myself back in the sweet spot? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And it goes to me kind of to the heart of conversational
2: capacity. And that is that mindset, right? What am I really focused on here? And it can't be being comfortable. It can't be being right. I can't be dedicated to reinforcing my confirmation bias. Uh, It's not about an ego massage. It's about learning. And so, you know, how do I confront my own thinking in a way that expands my ability to learn from other people? And if I walk in with a very strong mindset, that Ted's really difficult, he always dominates the conversation and he's, you know, takes way too much time talking, Fair. limit my ability to engage with you in a constructive way. So I may need to try to recognize, yeah, that's kind of a, maybe a narrative I had in my head, but I need to set that aside because that may get in my way of having a good conversation. So we talk about this idea of holding your views hypothetically. It's actually one of my favorite definitions of conversational capacity. Someone with high conversational capacity is able to hold their views, their ideas, their perspectives, even their judgments of others, like a hypothesis, not a truth. It's not that they don't have them. It's that they have a different relationship to them. And so rather than going in with a confirmation bias, I'm kind of doing the opposite. I'm actually looking for evidence that might contradict my view. Mm-hmm. You know, And so we talk about, you know, how do I learn to treat my views more hypothetically? But that's hard to do because your brain doesn't hand you a view that feels hypothetical. Yeah. And so I think that that's a high order psychological task there to learn to hold your views more hypothetically. And I think you may have just done an activity with Randy here recently we do called Indianapolis Journaling. We actually ask people to pay more attention to when your brain goofs it, right? When your brain screws up, relish those moments. You you relish them. I give the example of, you know, finding the wrong shopping cart in a grocery store, pushing off and looking down and saying, that's weird. Someone put a person in my cart. No, no one put a person in your cart, dummy. You're in the wrong aisle. But just laughing at that, go, wow, I can't even find the right shopping cart in a grocery store. Why am I reacting so strongly to this issue here? So it kind of helps you create a little psychological distance from your own thinking, even when it's about someone else or a judgment you've made. So I don't know if that's a helpful answer or not.
1: No, it's a very helpful answer because again, I think any little tip or trick you can take for yourself as you go into these situations to just make yourself cognitive of your your own weirdness, you know, and then and that when you go into a meeting and you know, I I I think it's pretty natural if you go in amped up, it's really difficult to 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 get yourself to the sweet spot. Because if you go in on the defense or you go in with a preconceived notion or you lack situational awareness, so to have strong people who are neutrally you know, in charge of like, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing there, and I'd ask that you lean a little more towards curiosity in your thinking here, and let's take a break. Everybody, you know, water in, water out. We'll come back in ten minutes, and people get to move around and think about what they're doing. They come back. I, yeah. I've, I mean, that's one of my huge learnings from you, Greg, and and as well as your brother. So I'm that's really great grateful way for to that. Think about it. Yeah. It yeah. kind of
2: goes back to you know, Abraham
1: Lincoln. I don't like that man. I got
2: to, I ought to get to know him better. I don't like that person in meetings. They tend to be dominant. They seem a little arrogant. They don't seem to listen to me. Well, I got to get to know him better. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe I'm contributing to that problem in a way I don't see or appreciate. So going into it with more of a curious, you know, Columbo mindset, yeah. as opposed to walking in with your arms crossed, going, I think so. it's a, what can I learn here? Maybe I'm contributing to the behavior I'm seeing in that person in a way I can't see or appreciate. And I'm blaming them without taking any responsibility that could be interesting. Or maybe yeah. there are other variables or maybe no one's ever gave them, given them the feedback and they don't know they're behaving this way.
1: Well, it's like your dinner table, you know, metaphor of like, you know, go around the room and ask people, well, how was conflict dealt with at your dinner table? And then you, again, you get empathy because you get a true understanding of why they act the way they act.
2: Yeah. So another like,
1: great strategy. It's like, Oh yeah. No. I, I caught myself coaching someone the other day who kept like, they what well, not kept they kept using the word like that person's like and then they would make a comparison to a negative person and that person's like well of course if that's what you're looking at them as and you're finding the evidence it's going to be pretty hard for you to to have the capacity to to get to you know all of these great things of you know cognitive diversity and understanding and empathy Yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
2: that's a great way to frame it. It's almost like a good question to keep in mind when you find yourself reacting negatively to someone is, you know, what is it I don't know about them that might change how I think about them?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: That's going to keep you more curious. What is it I don't know about them that might change how I think about them?
1: That's a wonderful question. Yeah, so I,
2: I that's kind of, yeah, I like that. That's a great way to think about it there. The other thing I like what you said, too, if you have a sweet spot facilitator, you know, that things are going a little crazy. I like the idea of the sweet spot facilitator saying, OK, look, what, we are at break time. Let's take a 10 minute break. Before we do, though, everyone show me your hand. On a scale of one to five, how good a job were we doing at staying in the sweet spot the last 30 minutes? Mm, two. OK, what do we need to do more of and less of after the break to get a higher score? So there's kind of this feedback loop oh, we got to get a score. Okay. So more testing yeah. and inquiry. We weren't as curious. Okay. I'm going to watch that in the next in the next bit, but work with me. We're going to see if we can't get a higher score by the time we get to the next break. So there's this, they're paying attention to the patterns. They're giving feedback and encouraging people to adjust their behavior accordingly. That can be a really simple way to kind of, like you said, get people off the dance floor, up on the balcony, thinking about how we're engaging with each other in the
1: mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. So that when we come back in, we come with a different type of energy as well. And you know, Craig, just remember in the education world, we call that fist to five. So fist is zero, five. And if you're going to give us a one, use your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to give us a one, there's a particular figure we don't right. want to see. Right. So <laughs> so, so speaking, of, speaking of being safe, talk to me a little bit about, you know, the second article. Again, like I just loved about creating psychological safety through these processes and how, how you know in conflict and 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 having to have hard conversations again going back to you know your processes and, and thinking around especially with influence and action and your ideas there but like how do you how do we get better at creating psychological safety and the reason i ask I, now i feel like i'm asking a 7 mile long question the reason i ask is I'm becoming a huge proponent for this idea of creating mental fitness opportunities for people that I'm around, building stronger capacity to be more resilient and gritty, and and vulnerable around like where, where they're at in the moment emotionally, and and do they have the, you know, do they have the ability to be present? And you know, I've been falling back on your processes. So in 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 the movement of of creating conversational capacity, how can we also use that for safety? For, for people who might be vulnerable?
2: Love it, no, great question. I think there are two ways, two ways to answer that. One I think is a little more obvious and the other may not be. Um, First way, if you have a team with high conversational capacity, they're going to be more psychologically safe. People are being candid and courageous, but curious and humble. They're open minded. They react to differences of opinion with a curious response rather than a defensive one. I know I feel confident in my team's ability to handle it when I bring up a concern, an issue or push back on an idea that is going to create a more psychologically safe environment that you know Amy Edmondson describes as a uh, an enabling condition for effective teamwork. If people feel safe, they don't feel like they're going to be punished for bringing up a contrarian view, that by virtue, that, that's going to make a safer environment. So I would argue conversational capacity is a, a competence. If it's an enabling condition for effective teamwork, conversational capacity is an enabling competence for creating those conditions. And so if we've got a conversational code of conduct, we've got people working on building their ability to stay in an non-defensive state, even under pressure. We've got a sweet spot facilitator helping us kind of stay in this productive place that's gonna create a more psychologically safe environment. So I think it's a way to create the conditions described as psychological safety in the research. The other thing I talk about in this article that I don't think anyone else talks about, I've never heard anybody, is do-it-yourself psychological safety. Sometimes the only psychological safety you're gonna have in a meeting is the psychological safety you walk in with. Mm. And so you're in a heated parent-teacher conference as a teacher, let's say, um, You know, there's no psychological safety in there. There are no conditions there that produce it. It's up all up to you, and I think if you've got someone with high conversational capacity and they're more they're more emotionally disciplined, I'm able to catch it, name it, and tame it when I'm at risk of being triggered out of out of, in a, in a non productive way. If I've got a really sharp focus, so I've got more cognitive discipline, I'm able to stay zeroed in on what counts in the conversation, focus on the signal, ignore the noise. That's going to make me a little more comfortable, not perfectly comfortable, but a little more safe. And if I've got the skills, the actual behaviors to align my mouth with that mindset, I know how to respond in a way that, you know, helps kind of navigate the conversation constructively, that is going to give me more psychological safety. So I like the idea of do-it-yourself psychological safety. And I kind of paraphrased Robert Piercing in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance who said, the only Zen you're going to find at the top of a mountain is the Zen you take with you. (laughs) Right. And the only psychological safety you're going to find in some situations is the psychological safety you take with you. And so that's two ways of thinking about it, I guess. And
1: I'll stop there. No, I think that's wonderful because uh, it, it always begins with you, right? It's I, I own my happiness. I own my engagement. And if others, if if I'm allowing others to make me feel a certain way when I walk into the room or when I'm participating in the conversation, you know, to to use your scale. If I go into minimal, if I go into minimize mode, and you know, I I completely lack curiosity, and I'm just sitting there. Um, that's a choice. Mm. Um, but again, going back to where we started here, if we've got a sweet spot facilitator who can make it safe and and kind of lean into us, because one of the other things I think is is powerful is sometimes to just go to paper. And ask people like, you know, just take a moment to reflect upon where we're at and what we're talking about. Write down your ideas and then be prepared to either turn to the person next to you or share with everyone, uh, you know, kind of what you're thinking. Cause that people get weird narratives in their mind, man, when there are their hierarchies in the rooms. And and I yep. appreciate your thinking on this. No,
2: I like that idea. Yeah. I've seen a couple of variations on that too. One where you know an executive put an idea on the table, explained, is it, look, you all know me, I've never made it easy for any of you to challenge me around a situation like this. I'm working on that, but I need your input. So let's just do it this way. Break into pairs for 15 minutes. And in 15 minutes from each pair, one thing you like, two things you don't. Mm. simple. Everyone in the room is now actively engaged. There's, there's a lot of energy. I think the signals that person's sending are really strong. I really need your help here. Help me think this through more clearly. I love the emphasis on the negative. One thing you like, two things you know. So that's a simple strategy too. Slows people down, gets them talking. Um, the other executive will get up and leave the room, put his decision on the table, what he's currently thinking and why and said, look, you know, if I walk out of this meeting with the same decision I walked in with, I'll be disappointed. I'm going to leave for 30 minutes when I come back in half an hour, throw uh, I'd like three concerns up on the board and we'll work them through together. And You just get out of their way for a while. So, ways of trying to create those psychologically safe environment where I can really get what I need from my team, and it isn't a bunch of people telling me what they think I want to hear. It's people who are willing to raise their hand and go, "Really, you think that?" That's 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 how it won't work. Yeah, but that, that's hard. So, I think it's another way to create psychological safety is to be good at doing what you just described. Take a couple of minutes, and everyone write down their biggest concern about this and why. Share it for a couple of minutes with the person next to you, and let's go around and have everyone report out. You're going to be much more confident after that exercise. You've got more access to the concerns around the table than you would if you just asked that out loud.
1: Yeah. I, I have a unique life experience where I, I was uh, working with a very, very um, tenacious uh, executive, uh, and she was my boss. And one day she realized that we were paralyzed by her like rapid response to any level of criticism. So everybody just slowly started to withdraw and get really quiet. But she also knew that we would not be successful unless we had the opportunity to, as she would say, get a kick at the cat. And she said, uh, she threw a marker at me cause she was frustrated and, you know, having been a third baseman, I caught that really quickly. And, uh, she said, when I come back, I want that board filled with what you like and what, what we need to change and then and then me being a kind of the smart ass that I am I said how much time do we have and cuz I didn't want her coming back in 5 minutes and she said right. I'm gonna, I will come back in an hour and uh it might have been the single most powerful leap forward we had as a team by her leaving the room putting up the stuff on the board all voices heard and then her walking in and asking questions off of those pieces and then either the author or the facilitator explaining it. So what happened was, and this is an old Eisenhower trick, the paper became what we negotiated off of not the people. Mm-hmm. So I really like your I really like, I like that, that suggestion to have people walk out the door because again, sometimes in the absence of a neutral process, you know, an idea becomes personal then we hit the person with it and then we just we explode the sweet spot bubble in the yeah. middle.
2: Yeah, no I like that. It's also and by the way those two examples I just gave are at the end of the article on psychological safety so if any listeners are say oh, I would like to see you know I'd like to share that idea you can find them both in that article but you you talked earlier too about how we walk in with preconceived notions about one another and those can inform how we engage with each other so you almost get stuck in a loop you know it's and so uh, I think what that your boss there did throw the pen and say I'm going to leave the room I want you know you got an hour that confronts perhaps a perception in the team about her, right? And so I think it's a great job of her actually disrupting the narrative in her team's head about her because she's acting in a way that's inconsistent with that narrative in a very dramatic way. So I like that. It kind of, how do I help my team maybe think more, you know, how do I get out of the trap I've set for myself where my team all perceive me a particular way? How might I behave in a way that contradicts that and open things up again?
1: Yeah. And, and it also, the other piece that goes, you know, like your conversational code of capacity, if you have a strong, you know, kind of presence as a leader, you know, giving permissions is another thing that's really important. Like, listen, I need you to know you have permission to cut me off, that when I get heady and visionary and I'm up in the clouds, like, you can stop me and say, and, and start asking questions. And while I will look visibly frustrated, you need to know that I really respect it. Yeah. Sometimes some of those disclosures, like you've coached us around, is are, are really important because in their absence, it's really hard to live in that sweet spot. Yeah.
2: No, that's right. Yeah. I worked with an executive in Denver a number of years ago, and he was a, a very gruff individual. Uh, the team was really struggling with him. You know, he got you know nothing in terms of feedback, and so he started trying to use the conversation capacity skills. And the team later said, what really convinced us he meant it. Was when he would lose it in a meeting. He'd lose it, and the very next meeting, he'd come back and say, "Look, I lost the plot in the last meeting when I brought when you brought up this issue. I really apologize for that. I, I really am trying to do better. I spent a lot of time reflecting on it. I'd like to try it again." Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't that he was always perfect. Is when he blew it, he'd come back and own it and try to address the problem again. So I, I like that. It's not so much that you're perfect with this stuff, it's that you're trying. And they see you trying. They see you're willing to own it. They see you're being vulnerable when you choke. I think that in some way sends an even stronger message that if you're perfect with it constantly.
1: Yeah, I, I've coached some people around like, listen, when your conscious catches up to you after you've failed, you have to go back and you have to do three things. First, you have to explain I erred and I appreciate your patience with me second here's what i need help from you on and third this is what i'm going to do differently that's classic like how you work with a child with an emotional behavioral disability but it's very applicable to like every element of life what yeah. do I, I what do you need me to do different so that we can get to this point cuz yeah. i'll be a little vulnerable here I, I i mean i've got a very close colleague who when other people get start to buzz about you know something I want to do or we are doing and they don't have the necessarily you know st- I don't want to use strength but they don't necessarily have the the willingness or the skill to ad- address it with me they'll go to her hmm. and then they'll be with her and she'll walk in and I I can just feel I'm about to be coached yeah right and, I, and, and, and frankly, I love it, but every time it happens, I use it as an opportunity with the others to say like, listen, she's not your ambassador. What do I need to do different so that you 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 will, are willing to share this directly with me? And then they'll say, Ted, you're you're like hypersonic cognitively. You, you're already you've already thought through what I've said before I finished. So like you I need to know that you're actually listening. and then I grow. And, and again, that's where after reading your book and seeing you in person is like, shoot, this is the process.
2: That's great. And I love that example. Thanks for being vulnerable. And it highlights another point we haven't discussed. And this kind of adds a layer of complication. What I find in my work, say, in business with CEOs, let's say, um, the CEOs people often struggle to engage with openly the most are not the ones they fear. It's the ones they respect and love. Mm. So now that's a problem. <laughs> Right. But that's a real I mean, if I'm afraid of you, sure. Okay. Ooh, I don't want to bring this up. I don't want to stick my head in that bear trap. That's obvious. But what's often even more frightening is if I really care about them. I know they're a good person. I know they care about me. I respect their intelligence and their knowledge and you know the organization they've built. That can be even riskier. The last person I want to look stupid in front of, the last person I want to make feel bad is this person who I really care about and respect. So that adds a layer of complication to this, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, and and to your point, I think we can model that as leaders because I heard a line years ago where someone said, I'm the type of person who will tell you you have spinach in your teeth, which basically allowed me to like rapidly realize they're going to tell me like they're gonna be candid with me. <laughs> and and I've now used that, like, because I'll even say when people have spinach in their teeth, hey, I'm the kind of person who tells you you have spinach in your teeth, you have spinach in your teeth, right? And then they're like, Oh, geez. And they've then they're mad at the nine people who didn't. Exactly. So I just
2: talked to someone, yeah, who had that exact experience. Yeah, that's hilarious. You know, So We've talked to like a bunch of people and then, oh, the last person they talked to said, oh, by the way, you've got a black bean covering up one of your front teeth. It's like, what?
1: Right? <laughs> no one else told him. Yeah,
2: hilarious.
1: Well, my relevant example was when I was teaching middle school, I probably had gone about three class periods with my zipper open. And and what I loved about what you said is I I, I believe that I had relationships with my students where there was an admiration and a fear of disappointing me. Right. And when no one told me my zipper was open until this very sweet little girl comes up and she's like, Mr. Nightsky, I did, I did, I got elected from my group to tell you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and I just like, what? that stinks. I didn't make a big deal out of it. I wasn't angry. And I, again, those life lessons. I got
2: elected. That's hilarious. I drew this elected. straw.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, she was so sweet. She was such a great guy. Oh,
2: that's great. Yeah. She's a-, a,
1: she's a surgeon now. So she she
2: did oh. something well. You did something well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. It's funny. The same stories, you know, your young kid in elementary school struggling with those kind of social awkward, socially awkward situations. It is no different in a boardroom, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, people are people and they don't change that much. Randy talks about this all the time. He works with executives. Oh my gosh. It was like working with a bunch of sixth graders. Yeah. They're a little bigger and their voices are deeper, but that's
1: really the biggest difference. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is, I think that's the, that's our, that's our great burden, right? Is that like, and I think that's a cool part for your brother um, being an educator is he goes into these situations after being a classroom teacher all those years and he sees, oh my gosh, I'm using the same skills I use to get sixth graders to focus that I am with grown adults, men and yeah. women, you know, with advanced degrees and powerful positions. And they're still, you know, can I go to the bathroom? Yes, people are people.
2: Right. Yeah. He said it's striking. You know, you kind of assume you're working with a group of executives in a boardroom. That's going to be worlds apart from dealing with sixth graders. Like the similarities are greater than the differences. Right. It's like people are people. Yeah. Yeah. So the the personalities around the table, the, the behavioral dynamics, all the ego stuff playing out, you know, people posturing. It's like people being shy and not engaging. It's like, wow, this is this feels really familiar.
1: Well, I mean, if you and I were to go to a conference together, Craig, and you sat next to me and you were there to like focus and learn, and I was like, oh, I read this book or I already know about the, you would be, it would be a nightmare because the whole time I'd be leaning into your, like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if, and then you'd be like, oh, come on, man. Or you'd be laughing and then I'd be square faced and the speaker be looking at you like, what's so funny over there? So yeah, we don't exactly. change. I'm still, yes. I'm, yeah. I'm still emotionally 14. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the last thing I wanted to chat with here in the last couple of minutes we have is walk me through how to use your processes as we enter the wonderfulness of primary political season in America here. Yeah. Because politics is spilling over to everything we do. And in education, I spend a really large chunk of time working with superintendents and school boards when people are coming from positions. Yep. And I love the fact that you actually work at two with two different state level legislatures around your processes. So walk us through like, okay, you know, you know, you got your crazy uncle Phil at the dinner table and he's just lighting everybody up, you know, Oh, Teddy teaches at a government school. And, and then you're just like, here we go. And you come to go. the table, you come to the table ready or, or you're in the community and, and, so, what are some of the different skill sets and, and and strategies you would suggest for us that that get to deal with that?
2: Yeah, great question. Yeah, I've been really fortunate. Like fifteen years or so, to spend a lot of time in a, a couple of states in particular, Georgia and South Carolina, with Georgia State Universities. Um, uh, Institute of Medicine, South Carolina's Institute of Medicine and Public Health at USC, and then Georgia State University's Georgia Health Policy Center. They're the ones that started a program. And every other year, we skip election years. We get Republicans and Democrats coming in and learning to engage with each other in the sweet spot as they deal with policy issues. Both institutions, we focus on healthcare, which is very contentious. And what's surprising is they love it. I thought, why try? This is going to be like, you know, I could. Train a chair to have more impact, but we get repeat customers. We get people to come back several years in a row, you know several times in a row because they want to get better at it. So that's encouraging, and it reminds me of something I believe Steve Jobs said to uh, Rupert Murdoch years ago. He said the dividing line in American politics is not between people who are Republican or Democrat, progressive or conservative. It's between people who are constructive and destructive, and there are people on both sides of the aisle. To me, that provides a very useful lens. There are good people trying to make their country and their communities a better place on both sides of the aisle. How do we empower them and engage them in a more constructive way? And if you got someone who's on the more destructive side, you know, try to you know get away from them as quick as possible. So I guess a way to say it, if two ways to think about it. If you're engaged in a discussion and politics come up, try to be the constructive variable. You can't control the other person, but try to make the conversation a little more balanced, a little less defensive, a little smarter than it would be if you weren't engaged in that. On the other hand, there are going to be times and places you're you know, Uncle Bob's at the dinner table going off on a topic where it's isometric exercise. You're not gonna change Uncle Bob. The meat, the dinner may be a misery, but at least you can use it to stop. You know, how can I use this to strengthen my own ability not to get triggered, not to react defensively? So sometimes look at it like isometric exercise. I'm probably not gonna make much of a difference here, but I can use this uncomfortable situation for my own benefit there are other situations where maybe I can use this as a practice and perhaps play a constructive role, make it a little less defensive, a little more balanced, maybe create a little more learning that would have occurred if I hadn't been in the conversation.
1: I love it. I I don't know if you remember this or even know this, but I'm a, I'm the mayor of my city. We have talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's and, awesome. and one of the things that I find myself doing, which you just explained, my metaphor is mock trial. So in high school, I was in mock trial and in mock trial, you have to learn both sides of the case, and you have to master both sides of the case because they literally flip a coin at the mock trial competition, and one time you're on the defense, and one time you're prosecution, and you do, you never know. And and your thinking and, and and what you've taught me is that when I'm in situations, I go into what I call mock trial mode. So I Love go it. in there, and I'm listening to try to understand, like, where is this coming from and how 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 did you formulate this perspective and and why are you so passionate about it and i don't say it or think it in a con, in a, in a like a, a confrontational manner it's more of like help me understand why you think fluoride is killing us mm-hmm. because i've never heard that before yeah. and then and then there's just a respect there that that helps me get into that sweet spot so yeah. i admire your work on that thanks it's well, Especially
2: when you realize I'm not obligated to agree with your view on fluoride, but it doesn't mean I can't be really interested in trying to understand where it's coming from. So I think a lot of people feel like if I actively inquire and start getting curious about their view, I somehow feel obligated to agree with them. Where is that written down? You just want to understand them. Yeah. So, yeah, I like that. And I think there's not enough of that in politics. And it goes back, you know, what really well, given all our work together, those three questions we encourage people to kind of keep in mind in a conversation. A, hey, what am I seeing about this issue others are missing? I need to be candid. What are other people seeing about this issue I'm missing? And then what are we all missing? I think that middle question in political dialogue is what's missing much of the time. What are they seeing about this issue I'm missing? I'm not obligated to agree with it, but I want to understand how they're looking at it. How are they framing it? What what sources of information are they looking at? Do they have access to research or data that I was unaware of? So you just seem a little more curious. It makes it a little less painful to engage with someone who may have a really different political view. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, Craig, I have to tell you, you have a job where you probably don't always get to see how your impact cascades down into organizations. And I just want to share with you, you know, you you and your brother now have worked with us, and we'll we'll have 20, 30 school districts represented in a room during one of your amazing you know, webinars that are so applicable and practical and relevant. I'm now walking into school board rooms and district training centers. And I see your questions up on the wall. I see the sweet spot with candor and curiosity and the arrows pointing in. I hear principals in their meetings with their departments and grade levels, you know, asking really, really good questions. And the other day I heard one of the principals say, you know, there's three questions, but I'm going to ask a fourth question. What is it that we're afraid of? There you go. And again, it's just another view of the empathy of how to do that. So yeah. you, great, curious question. What is it we're afraid of here? Yeah, great. Yeah, I love that. And you're you're making a difference and you're training in your, in your literature and your thinking and your mindset and then how you've trained up your brother of just, it's impactful. So to get to spend another hour with your friend and, and just have a conversation that's you know, you and I know where we're going with it. Hopefully the listeners don't think we're ping-ponging all over the place, but I, <laughs> I I, just really admire that. And, you know, I wish I could get a ride in that old Honda Civic with you and listen to the Eagles driving through California. How did you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's no, yeah.
2: Well, thank you. And you guys have been great about really kind of taking these ideas and really applying them in a very important and yet somewhat challenging context. So, I love that. So the fact that you and your team are actually making a difference with this in demonstrable ways is very satisfying. So appreciate the fact that uh, you know, you're finding it useful and more importantly, applying it.
1: Yeah. So two questions to close out. First one is if people are interested and they want to learn more or work more with you, like what are the best ways to do that? Uh, com. And then the books, McGraw McGraw Hill
2: published both. So they're both available online, you know, Amazon or wherever else you look for good books. So uh, that's an easy way to kind of get more familiar. You mentioned the articles on LinkedIn, those are also on the website, but you can also ping me on LinkedIn and uh, connect with me there. I'm constantly trying to post stuff that talks about, reinforces, or connects with in some way the work I do.
1: Yeah. And then the last thing is I want your reaction to this because while we were talking, I developed a tool. That uh we're gonna create a little piece of and we'll we'll give you credit for. But that the conversational code of capacity. Yeah. Um, what I like about that is I created a tool here really quickly that on one side we're gonna talk about what we do. And then on the other side, on the other side of the T chart, we'll talk about what we don't do. Nice. Perfect. So, so hitting us, you know, drawing us both in there so people understand both ways. So
2: that's a great way to kind of frame it clearly, right? Here's what we do, but here's things we agree not to do. I like that. Yeah. yeah, the first conversational code of conduct I ever helped create was for a school, a, a, a Waldorf school of all things in Vermont. But we actually got the, uh, the faculty, the administration and the parents association together. They built their conversation capacity and then they put a conversational code of con- conduct together and hung it up in the hallway in the school. So this is how we all agree when there's wow. a problem. Here's how we're going to kind of sit down and engage it in a healthy way.
1: And what I love about that is that empowers everybody when things go sideways to, sideways to go back and say, no, I'm sorry, this is this is how we do it here.
2: Yeah, yeah. And people well, are more likely to sit down and engage with it constructively. You know? Oh, yeah, we've got these rules here. I can't just go off on you like I might normally do, because that would be a clear violation of what we all agreed to. So it kind of brings a little accountability to how people engage with each other.
1: Yeah. Well, Craig... Thank you so much for your time, your work, your energy, your research, and your commitment to just helping so many people get better at having a conversation.
2: Thanks so much, Dad. This is fun. It's always
1: fun. So let's do some smart thinking. List the people in your life that you could increase your ability to be more curious with. Describe the ways in which you can apply the conversational capacity techniques you heard from Craig today, tomorrow. And finally, list those in your life that would benefit from hearing this conversational capacity breakdown so that they could be better for others. That's it. That's the Smart Thinking Podcast. Hey, as always, thank you for listening and please make sure to share this episode and rate it on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And remember. We can be found everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you need us to be so that you can listen to us each week. Also, thank you to the Wild Pennies for their great music and make sure to follow Golden Bear Studios to find out all the new releases from the great artists that they are producing. Okay, as we close out here, one of the things that I think was my favorite part of the conversation was just the idea of how to navigate some difficult conversations that come about as we head into the political season of spring, summer, and fall of this year. And I'm not bringing it up to be political. I'm bringing it up to help us because it can become very contentious. And what I really, really loved about the conversation and my favorite quote, which I put on the front end of the podcast, was try to be the constructive variable. Like Craig said, when he works with politicians and elected officials, be the person Who is sitting there wondering, is curious, is candid, and yet not judgmental? Such a great thing for us to apply because I think many situations we are in in work and life are not political, but they can feel the same way. The other thing that Craig had said that I really loved was the simple fact that too often, many times, the people who are afraid to have the hard conversations with us are not the ones who don't like us, but the ones who respect and love us. And engaging is hard with us because they respect us. Make it easy. Make sure to point it out. Make sure to use a process. Make sure to positively reinforce when people are doing what needs to be done, which is operating in the sweet spot. All right, everybody, have a great week. Remember, you're a leader and you have influence over other people. So use this knowledge to help others be the best versions of themselves. And of course, when a storm emerges... Don't forget, the first thing that we always do is charge into it.